I hope you all will join me in a spirit of prayer. Let us pray. God of grace, God of glory, God of justice and God of mercy. Help us by your grace to keep before us your compassion. Help us learn to let go of resentment and bitterness that poisons the soul and accept a fresh spirit that welcomes those who have been opposed to us as enemies or rivals. Lord God, help us learn forgiveness in the model of your mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> good morning on this beautiful, gorgeous morning. So good to be with you. And we begin with a story. I think I've told it before, but I know many of you are new, so hopefully it's new to you. But it is my touchstone story when it comes to forgiveness, which is the clear topic of our readings this morning. My story of forgiveness involves my paternal grandfather, my dad's father. My dad's father had a plan for my life. He not only had a plan for my life, but he had the will to carry it out. And he was used to people following orders. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force who had risen to that rank from enlisted status. A very able guy. A hard will to oppose. Well, his plan for my life had three pillars. I was to grow up to be a medical doctor. I was to grow up to be a faithful party Republican. And I was to grow up to be a heterosexual. My grandfather got one of those things. His plan was carried out in many ways that were meant to influence me. He campaigned, and I use that word knowing what it means, he campaigned to get me to leave New Jersey and move to be closer to him in Dallas, Texas, so he could supervise my upbringing. He wanted me to attend a preppy Episcopal boys school near him, and he tried to um, seduce me into this idea with visions of blue blazers and school ties and the girls' school next door. You see that third topic keeps coming up. His campaign included sending me posters of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, once again, ticking off more than one box. And finally, on one horrifying occasion, and I'm embarrassed even to bring it up, my grandfather brought me when I was 12 years old to the Dallas, Texas Playboy Club, which was in the building where he worked and introduced his short, skinny, 12-year-old prepubescent grandchild to women in bunny costumes. If you want to set back a boy, that's the way to do it. Finally, his last piece in the puzzle was to give me a wonderful gift, a real NFL football that had the signatures of all the famous Dallas Cowboys of the late 1970s, 
Stahlbach was on there, Too Tall Jones, Tony Dorsett. It was quite a gift. All this was pressure. All of this was a campaign. And I didn't care much for any of it. But my favorite part was exchanging letters with my grandfather. He would write me little typed letters and I would respond in my lousy handwriting. He would send little typed notes on stationery with his name and rank at the top, as well as the insignia of the Air Force. Lieutenant Colonel Walter Kerbel retired and he would type me notes and I would handwrite notes back. And this was fabulous until the day came when he sent a letter. I received it eagerly. It was fun to get mail back in the day. And I opened it up and out I, in the envelope, I found my last letter to him. Covered end to end with red corrections, corrections and in red ink, spellings underlined and corrected, grammar checked and changed, and a letter from him excoriating me for my lousy grammar and spelling. I was crushed. I was heartsick. My whole love of this habit we had was staying connected, was showing affection and love, sharing attention. I was a sensitive kid and that's what I cared about. I cared about loving attention. And he obviously wasn't on the same page. It was part of his project for me once again. And I was angry and I was hurt and I was upset and it distilled into bitterness. And anger. And we did not talk much after that moment. And even when he died, I was still unforgiving of him. I was angry and resentful. I was bitter and closed off to him. I'm not proud of any of that. It's just the way it was. One of the ways I acted out the anger was I took that football he got for me and I took it off the shelf and started to treat it like a normal football. It came outdoors and got used in football games. It got used in our pickup games in the neighborhood. It got brought to school and used during recess. And it got scuffed and it got battered and it got chewed up like a football does until you could barely read the autographs. It became less valuable as a collector's item. I retained my anger against him well into my 20s until God's grace intervened. One day I was remembering all of this and instead of building my anger, my imagination opened up and I began to imagine this little dignified man scooting about the building where he worked, gathering up these signatures for the football. He worked in the same building as the Dallas Cowboy offices. I can imagine this little dignified man in his blue blazer and his comb over stopping Staubach in the elevator and saying, just wait while I get this football for you to sign or tracking down Tony Dorsett in a hallway and asking him to sign it. 
And in that moment, my heart opened up and I could see him as a person again, flawed and full of gifts, a person again, a human being, someone who was doing the best he could to love me the best he could. Someone who was doing the best he could to show love the best he could. And my heart broke open, the defenses went down, and I cried. I cried tears of grief that were long overdue. Tears of grief for losing him and being estranged from him when he died. Tears of grief for the relationship we lost in those last years. Tears of grief for my own stubbornness and willfulness. And I was able, even after he had died, to forgive him. Let him go. Release him from my judgment. However justified or unjustified it may have been. Our readings today are about forgiveness. They're about that spiritual act of grace where we release a person who has harmed us or wounded us from our judgment and from our sense of vengeance and retribution, from our bitterness, our resentment, and our anger, so that we, as Paul says, can welcome them again as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a great spiritual gift that we have to share, and Scripture makes it clear that it's a practice that is core to our following God, because it reflects how God has forgiven us, and it reflects how we have responded to the mercy shown to us. And I know forgiveness is not easy. I know this is touching on the most hurt and sensitive places in our souls. And I know that our forgiveness does not change the person who harmed us. And it doesn't always mean we're going to let that person back into our life if they are not safe in our presence. Sometimes it'll merely mean that we are free of the punishing anger, the punishing bitterness and resentment that clouds our heart. Other times it will restore a relationship and reconcile us to people who have broken away from us. Paul is in an interesting situation with the Romans because he never met the Romans before writing this letter. He doesn't know their situation. So he is basing his teaching to the Romans on other churches he knows better. In today's case, the church in Corinth. This whole issue of eating meat or not eating meat is not a matter of whether you go to the co-op or you go to Acme. This is a matter of how involved are you in the cultic practices of your city. In Corinth, there was a fight over eating meat or eating vegetables, because if you ate the meat, it might indicate that you were engaged in the cults of the pagans where the meat was sacrificed. So eating 
meat sacrificed to idols could mistakenly give the impression that you respected those idols and that pagan religion. Paul, I think, was concerned that this might ha be happening in Rome, too. And he's trying to help these parties who are not just disagreeing about diet, they're disagreeing about monotheism and polytheism. They're disagreeing about public witness and cultic involvement. This is both cultic and civic. It's about how they are perceived where they live and how they perceive each other. This is serious stuff when it comes to empire. What does Paul do but reminds them to see that each party is trying to worship God in the best way they can? He does a classic move of conflict resolution, asking them to look past the differences and find the unity. Look past the differences and find the unifying factor. Here, the unifying factor is a desire to please God that exists in both abstaining or eating. And then he pushes farther. Don't just find your unifying factor in God. Remember that it is before God that you are all accountable and all your actions reflect who God is. It is the God that you share who grounds all your practice, all your belief in mercy. Now, when we turn to the gospel, we see this repeated. Clearly, the teaching is that be merciful as God has been merciful to you. And the abundance of the mercy is extreme. The slave in the parable owes 10,000 talents. This is a Greek way of saying all of the talents. It's an extreme expression of money that no one could expect or count. It's not an exact number. It's meant to say more money than you can ever imagine was owed. So more forgiveness than you can ever imagine was given. And Peter in his dialogue with Jesus is in the same vein. Peter says, should I forgive seven times? Once again, not about the number of times. Seven is the number that represents perfection. Peter is asking, should I forgive perfectly? Jesus responds, seven times, 70 times, which is once again, once again an extreme expression that's meant to say, this is not about numbers. This is about superabundance. This is not about keeping score. This is about superabundance. That's how much forgiveness we're talking about here. That's how much forgiveness is a resource at your disposable, disposal through grace. That's how powerful this forgiveness is that overcomes all that estranges us and alienates us from one another. That's the good news. Now, what's problematic, I've discovered, is that modern people often don't think of themselves as actually that sinful. And so they have a hard time understanding that they are recipients of mercy.
we have a hard time understanding how super abundant God's love and mercy is towards us because basically we think we're good already. And there's a lot of ways to think about that. And I think part of it is simply an individualistic kind of domesticated notion of what sin is, where sin is kind of a bourgeois idea of keeping your personal house in order. Or unfortunately, because of church teaching, a notion that we should avoid dirty thoughts. So we have in some ways lost the biblical notion of what sin is. And when we lose that, we lose our notion of how much God's mercy has cost and how much God's mercy is abundant to overcome our rebellion and our obstruction of God's ways. I learned about this problem in the 80s when I was active in Latin American advocacy issues. I learned of the notion of what's called corporate or social sin. We don't just participate in our own actions, we participate in the wickedness of larger groups and bodies, like our government or the various governments we live under. And we participate in that sinfulness in other words, the evil done on our behalf, whenever we fail to speak out, whenever we fail to vote against the evil, whenever we fail to act to oppose evil structures and reform them. In the case of Latin America, Guatemala taught me a lot. Here we have a country that has suffered from the meddling of the CIA and the US government, for the last 60 or 70 years or more. We overthrew a democratically elected government there. We supported and imposed autocrats and dictators. We trained the police forces and the military that led a 30-year civil war against the civilian population, largely Mayan and indigenous people, killing tens of thousands of men, will, women, and children, and interring them in mass graves. This is wickedness. This is evil. And it's something our country did. And it's something that implicates us if we were of voting age like I was during that period. This is social sin. This is collective sin. It is part of the wickedness that afflicts us and that we participate in. Knowing this and learning to reflect on ourselves beyond our personal level of responsibility for our private lives, but also reflecting on our civic lives, we can perhaps better understand all that we've done to alienate ourselves from God and our need for mercy and that our hope lies in mercy and grace that overcomes these evils that are so powerful and hard for us to affect and change. We know how much we've been forgiven and welcomed by God when we know how far we've strayed. We can give testament to the power of God's forgiving mercy and love when we can tell the story of how far we've come from our place of estrangement to our place of welcome with God. 
we can tell the story of how great our God is and God's mercy when we know it in our own lives. And when we can learn, and from there, we can learn to share it through the practice of forgiveness, the practice that mends the world back together by extending grace and learning to recognize the humanity of our neighbor. What helps us do that? is knowing that we are as mixed up ourselves as our neighbor. We are as full of liability and gift as our neighbor. We are as confused and as lost as our neighbor. This can become the basis for rejoining ourselves under the banner of God's mercy. Amen.